there are many misconceptions about Christianity today. One of them is to think it's just for people who like being religious. Sometimes you hear about people who uh, practice Buddhism or a practicing Jew or a practicing Catholic. And of course, there have been signs that during this time of COVID crisis that people have been taking a fresh look at Christianity. They've been researching on Google what it means to pray. Perhaps they're considering of what it would take to become a practicing Christian that might help them get through this time of crisis. Now, I think it's important to say that uh, you can't just tack Jesus onto your existing life. The people who investigate uh, Jesus, some find great joy in, and transformational change. Others have investigated Jesus and by the end they wanted to kill him. I mean, that's what we found uh, as we read from Mark's gospel earlier in our online service. An outsider, uh, a social outcast like Levi could could, could be considered as the uh, one of the sinners by the religious community. Well, he's willing to leave his old life behind and he finds great joy, he throws a feast for Jesus. But then you've got other respectable religious people who by the end of their investigation of Jesus not only wanted no more to do with him, but they want him dead. They want to kill Jesus. Now, why, why was that the case? How, how is that still true for us today? Well, if you'd like a couple of words that would help remind you what this passage of Mark's gospel is about, it's these two words, religion or Jesus. Turns out that there are two totally different things going on when it comes to religion and Jesus. Mark puts together five accounts where Jesus had a verbal clash with the religious leaders of the time. We don't have time to look at all the details, but I want to just look at a few of the highlights from the verbal uh, boxing match. In the, in the blue corner, we have the seriously religious Pharisees. They were well-respected people of Israel. Uh, they were not specially ordained priests. They were pious laymen. They stood for family values. They fought against the, uh, the influences of the Greco-Roman culture. They stood firmly on the rock of the Torah, the Mosaic law that was real, revealed by God. And they were committed to reading and applying God's word to all of their life. And because life was so complex, they developed kind of an amazing rich tradition of teaching called the tradition of the elders, where they filled it with additional rules to cover all eventualities. They, they had significant moral influence in the synagogues and the practice of Judaism at the time. Well, that's in the blue corner. In the opposite corner, we have Jesus of Nazareth. He's been showing what awesome authority he has to back up the claim that he that we're dealing with the Messiah King, the Son of God. Already we've seen that he made a big splash in the area around the town of Capernaum where crowds were pouring in to see him. As each story comes, we see the stakes go higher and higher in this clash between the religious leaders and Jesus. And it's a clash at a very fundamental level. It's a question, how do you live to please God? Is God interested in the mere practice of religion or something else? Well, the, for, for the Pharisees, they were pitching in for religious practice. Pleasing God was about being Jewish and keeping all the traditions and rules. Jesus is teaching and life seems so radically different. Instead of practicing religion, it seemed to be all centered on him. How to get right with God was all about knowing him and trusting him and and that's why Christianity is radically different to any other religious system, because it's all bound up with Jesus. We considered the first two rounds over the last two weeks, but let me briefly recap. Round one, 
the religious accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. If you turn back to Romans uh, to Mark chapter two verse six and seven, Jesus had just pronounced to the paralytic who'd been lowered through the ceiling and put in front of him that his sins were forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, verse six, verse seven, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their view, Jesus is a blasphemer to to claim to forgive sins. They know that only God could say that. And Jesus' counterpunch shows his awesome authority as the Son of Man. Look at verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man who was brought in paralyzed jumps to his feet and walked out. Jesus demonstrated that he did have the authority to forgive sins. He was not a blasphemer, but the Son of God. Well, that was round one. Round two, the religious accused Jesus of being a compromiser. Jesus accepted the invitation to have a meal at the house of Levi, the tax collector. Take a look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, in their view, Jesus is a moral compromiser. I mean, they would never dream of sharing, you know, sharing meals with such riffraff. Holy men knew what it was to, to, to avoid unholy people because it was very defiling to do so. Well, Jesus' reply is stunning on hearing this. Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not a moral compromiser, but a doctor. What attracted Jesus to these people was exactly what repulsed the Pharisees. He saw people in great need. He saw the sick needing to be made whole. That's why Dr. Jesus had come. Now today, we're going to look at the next three rounds of the clash. Round three, the religious accused Jesus of being impious because his disciples did not fast. One of the big fascinations of religious life at this time was the place of fasting. Now, Hebrew scriptures only required people to fast on one day a year on the Day of Atonement. One day a year. A day to express sorrow over sin and humility. But by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees taught that if you really uh, want to be serious before God, you should abstain from food twice a week. And so the question comes to uh, Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 18. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Of course, it was a thinly veiled rebuke of Jesus. You're not very pious, Jesus, otherwise your disciples would fast too. You're not very serious about God. We're serious about God. We afflict ourselves with hunger to prove it. Now, Jesus could have pointed out that the Lord didn't require all this fasting, but his answer is far more surprising. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Now, wedding celebrations could last a whole week in those days, a whole week of feasting and joy and celebration. Can you imagine it? I love weddings. Uh, everyone dresses up, they look their best, and uh, normally there is good food 
and celebration. And I have never once been to a wedding reception where the, the groom uh, stands up and says something like this. My wife and I, everybody claps, my wife and I would like to invite you all to join us now in a time of fasting. Now, maybe the father of the bride footing the bill might warm to the idea, but I don't think it's going to catch on. You know, fasting is about grief and sorrow. Weddings are about feasting. So how could Jesus' disciples fast while Jesus was still present? He's the bridegroom standing amongst them. Now, in the Old Testament, God likened himself to being a bridegroom who loved Israel as a husband loves his bride. We, we read one reference in Isaiah 62. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Do you see what Jesus is claiming of himself? Jesus was saying, the reason my disciples don't fast is because I, the Son of God, Israel's true bridegroom, has come. Now's the time of joy and feasting. Because they're serious about God, they're rejoicing to have him present among them. And of course, that's always the case when you grasp who Jesus is and to, and to know why he came and you put your trust in him, then his presence is always a source of great joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, says the Apostle Paul. Now, the final two rounds are about the issue of the Sabbath. Round four, the religious say Jesus is a law breaker. Celebrating the weekly Sabbath was a big deal. It continues to be an important uh, thing for Orthodox Jews. One day of rest out of seven held on the Saturday. Just as God rested and, uh, after he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, Israel were commanded to rest on the Sabbath day. It was also a day of remembrance, remembering how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to their promised land where they could rest. Religious traditions had massively built up around Sabbath observance, adding lots of rules to help people obey it. For instance, you couldn't walk too far, uh, no further than 1,999 paces. Work was strictly uh, defined to avoid the infringement possibility of work. You could not harvest grain on the Sabbath. Healing a non-threatening disease was considered forbidden work on the Sabbath. And so from the viewpoint of the Pharisees, Jesus' behavior was highly questionable. Verse 24, the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He was clearly a lawbreaker. They saw him leading his disciples on a forbidden walk on the Sabbath day. And they saw his disciples reaping the crops on the Sabbath day. Why are they doing what is unlawful, Jesus? Now, his reply once again was absolutely stunning because of what Jesus reveals about himself. And he reminded them of a precedent for his actions in their scriptures. And it comes from the account of the life of David, one who was considered the most important king of Israel. Have you never read what David uh, did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abitha the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, nowhere in scriptures are David's actions condemned. And so Jesus reminds them of this precedent. But what a stunning comparison. Do you see what Jesus was inviting them to, to consider about his identity? 
See, these events happened for David when he'd been anointed as Israel's king, but a time when they had not yet recognized him, a time where he not, was, wasn't on the throne and when he was on run from those in charge. And Jesus was, marking, was marked out at his baptism to be God's king by God's spirit descending on him. He de demonstrated his authority over and over again, and yet their questioning shows they've not recognized him as their Messiah king. Their long-promised Messiah was standing before them, someone far greater than David. But they were so focused on their own religious traditions, they were failing to recognize the very one that scriptures were pointing to. Jesus goes further and he teaches them the whole point of the Sabbath. See, God had prescribed Sabbath rest as one of the Ten Commandments, not to burden people with lots of complicated laws, but it was a way to provide rest for them restoration, wholeness, a place of worship and enjoyment of God. Look at verse 27. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. And then Jesus says another staggering thing. Verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mean, instead of saying, you must let traditions uh, determine your life and thinking, he's saying, let what I say determine your life and thinking. Consistently in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was instituted and controlled by God. But here Jesus says, this is my domain. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is not a lawbreaker. He's the lawmaker. He is the divine Son of God. Round five has the feel of being a complete setup. Uh, the Pharisees have already made their mind up about Jesus. And um, they're not willing for their rules and their traditions to be stretched any anymore. And so chapter 3, verse 1, Another time Jesus entered the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now this is a dark and ugly scene, isn't it? To take place in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. This poor man with his shriveled hand, rather than being the object of their compassion, is now the battleground test case for their animosity for Jesus. Will he dare heal him on the Sabbath in the synagogue? Will he? Will he? Jesus calls the man into the middle of the synagogue and his questions reveal he knows their true intention. Verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, to save or to kill? But they remain silent. Jesus unmasked their religion as ugly hard-heartedness. Having asked the question, Jesus looked around them, eyeballed them, and he's angered and distressed at how blind they can be not to see their hypocrisy on the Sabbath day. They're hoping that Jesus will heal him so that they can be appalled and condemn him. That's how dark religion can get when it feels threatened. Sometimes people say, if I could see a miracle, then with my own eyes, then I would believe and become a Christian. They're hoping he does a miracle so they can condemn him. He looks around in anger. He's deeply distressed. They're stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Uh, well, these men undoubtedly witnessed a great miracle. But as they watched the hand being restored to full health, instead of falling on their knees before Jesus, acknowledging it was the Son of God, they're thinking to themselves, good, we've got him. And immediately they go out to plan a murder 
on the Sabbath day. They plan to do harm and to kill. I mean, what is this clash really all about? I think the key is found right in the middle of all this conflict in, in chapter 2, verses 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. These two parables explain the whole conflict. The old cloth, the old wineskins are their old religious system. Religion and Jesus do not go together. Their old religious system cannot contain the new thing that Jesus was bringing in. You can't just tack Jesus onto the old way you did life or thought about life. It seems to be on trend today to be walking around with massive holes in your jeans. But let's say you wanted to patch up the holes in your jeans. Well, you can't just take a new bit of denim and use it to patch over the hole because as soon as you put it in the wash, then the new bit will shrink and you'll have even bigger tear, a bigger hole in your jeans. And they didn't have uh, wine glass bottles. They, they used to use animal skins. And putting new wine into old, unstretched wines, old unstretchable wine skins was a recipe for disaster. As the new wine was still organically fermenting away, it would expand and it would crack and destroy the old wineskins and all your tasty drink would, would flow away. Jesus was the new thing, the new wine. He was so radically new that the old religious mindset could not contain it. It would burst it open and they knew it. Jesus and old religion did not mix. Religious sentiment, I think, is still around us today. We, we love to categorize people as the good people like us, the bad people who are not like us. Who those people are just depends on where you stand. We've all got different uh, existing structures and ways of thinking where we can see ourselves as the good people. We're the righteous. Thankfully, we're not like those other people, the deplorables. You know, So progressives can't stand the bigoted traditionalists. Uh, the small-c conservatives deplore, deplore those woke elite progressives. You know, religious sentiment is all around us. And we certainly don't want Jesus coming in to mess with our existing commitments. We can sometimes um, so cherish uh, our structures, our philosophical worldview. We can reach some respectability in our community that we don't want Jesus messing around with it. We don't want anything as radical as Jesus coming in to threaten our lives, to turn our lives upside down and inside out. And the more threatened we feel, the more we will be glad to hear that Jesus stayed dead. We certainly don't want any talk of resurrection or his return as a future judge. And so in our hearts we say, crucify him, crucify him. I don't want anything to do with him. People might not be religious today but their hearts can be just as stubborn and rigid in an atheistic secular worldview this is the problem of our stubborn sinful hearts we don't want this new wine the messiah king the son of god christless religion cannot fix the deepest problems of our sinful hearts only jesus can do it and in god's amazing plan the death of jesus was the very means of our salvation 
Jesus is still calling people to, to stand up publicly before others, to, to be humble enough to show that our lives are shriveled without him and to respond to his word of grace and salvation. For he came to restore stubborn, sinful hearted people. He is the one who has the authority to forgive our sins. He is the doctor who's come to call on sinners to restore us to health. He is, he is the son of God who passionately loves and cares for his lost people as a bridegroom loves his bride. He is the Messiah King and the Lord of the Sabbath who can provide for his companions. Do you see that the point is not about deciding to be a practicing Christian? It's about coming to a personal trust in this Jesus. And will you in faith respond to him who calls you today? Repent and believe the good news.